Leonard Ravenhill once wrote the following. Could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and give no hand? Can you sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? Jewish men and women, according to Acts 9-11, through 11, found themselves guilty of this poem's conclusion many, many times. We're going to keep seeing it. There was a willingness in them to view the promises that Messiah, Christ, a Savior, would come as only for themselves. If they were not listening before to the plan of God in all of time as He has had His heart set on the nations... There is clearly in the book of Acts, as Luke wants us to see, that uh, regardless of our inability to sit at ease in Zion while the world around us be damned, regardless of our proclivity to be there, the Holy Spirit is full of the confidence needed, the people, the right place to take from a Jewish faith background a gospel That is for Jew and Gentile alike to the ends of the world. It's amazing. Context today is important. In the two chapters prior, Cornelius, a Gentile who loves and worships Yahweh, those those are big words, but you know, a Gentile is, you know, somebody who is not Jewish. So they're not of the Hebrews, they're not of God's people, um, and doesn't worship Yahweh, which is God. Cornelius was one of those, but he would have been known and called a God-fearer. And prior to our text, he has received the free gift of eternal life, and he's been saved, he and his whole household. He and his household have been possessed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, They follow Christ in baptism and by all accounts represent for us the first Gentile converts to Christianity, which is amazing. If you don't remember, you need to know that Jews and Gentiles were never together like this in the story of Peter and Cornelius. They're never together in that way. We do have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, but even there it just seems like another man who's a God-fearer. Regardless, though, these interactions were so rare that when it happens between these two groups that famously hate each other, Acts has shown the power of the gospel changes that. So before our text in verse 18, the context is that the conclusion is to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's verse 18 before 19 today. This was God's plan of redemption from the very beginning of time. God wanted to do it and did it through the Jews. They didn't imagine it would happen through their persecutions, they themselves being the persecutors, or their gossip at times they themselves being the rumor starters, or through famine, the world even being against them keeping the gospel for themselves. Amazingly, as our text points out, God's plan of redemption from the very beginning of time can be carried out and accomplished by God according to His will every time, always, in the way He always has planned. Now, How does he save this first group of truly non-Jews? If our context is God has saved a Cornelius, a God-fearer, an Ethiopian eunuch, someone who's at least been exposed in such a way to desire to read Isaiah, what about somebody who is like me and you? The way you and I were 
you know, absolutely not born to any Jewish inheritance of the faith, more than likely, and instead entirely cut out, as a people at least, from God's promises. Interestingly enough, he does it through three terrible things in this text and uh, bringing uh, out of those the fruits of salvation. So in our text this morning, we'll see those things. We'll see first the persecution that became preaching. That's point one. Secondly, another negative thing is the gossip that became gladness. And then finally, a famine that became friendship. These are the three negatives that God will transform in our text, and they'll kind of serve for us as an outline. Let's talk about the first, persecution. Uh, Verses 19 through 21, persecution in our text becomes preaching in our text. That's so clear, and it's so in line with that Leonard, uh, Leonard Ravenhill hope, right? That we dare not sit in Zion while they be damned. How's God going to do it? Well, he showed us, right? And, and, and Acts 19, Acts, excuse me, you know, 11, 19, it's trying to take us back uh, to all the way to the chapter seven of the book of Acts as it starts out, those who were scattered because of the persecution and it rose over Stephen. That's a reminder, nothing new here, but let's be reminded together this morning. What was the entire book of Acts 7 about? Well, it was about the speech and the stoning to death of the very first Christian martyr named Stephen. Now, he's mentioned here in our text as a reminder of what happened when those religious leaders in Jerusalem began to lay violent hands on the church. Their pure rejection of Jesus Christ led them to a pure hatred for Christ's followers And it was unleashed on the church. Luke has given us that in summary this morning again. We pick that up again because Luke is showing us just how far reaching the plan of God went in using this awful negative event, persecution against the church, how God used it and how far it scattered his plan and the gospel message. Now, how far are we talking about? Our text tells us that Antioch, As far as Antioch, these believers landed. Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Even by our standards. Today, if you got in a car, you'd drive 10 hours, if you weren't stopping for a bathroom break, on our modern roads to go from Jerusalem to modern-day Antioch in Turkey. 10 hours of driving today. If you walked it and you could walk eight hours a day, On our roads, which make it easy, it'd still take you 17 days to cover this distance. And in their time, it would have been closer to about a month, possibly a month and a half, that they travel back as far as Antioch. How amazing. Right here at the bat, I want you to see a concluding thing about fulfilling the Great Commission. God can take persecution. He can turn it into preaching. We know this point from the book of Acts, but now it's doubled down on as a result of something terrible. I mean, truly terrible. And terrifying at that. Here are these men that have come to Christ and in fear of losing their lives, they're scattered and they're traveling to their homes. And we see, what did they do? All the way, they speak the word of God boldly. So that is, that is the first verse, verse 19. But notice verse 19 carefully, okay? Luke points something out about this bunch. This verse 19 group, they do speak, but do you notice they spoke to no one except the Jews, You see that in verse 19. 
speaking the word, to no one except Jews. I do not think that this is Luke putting them down per se. So let me be clear about that. However, I do think he's making a point. Here's the point. It's great, absolutely great, that, that these persecuted Jewish uh, believers now preach the gospel to their own Jewish friends back home. And in many ways, um, you know, that is actually a hard thing to do. I mean, we need to acknowledge that, right? I mean, they, the fact that they go back to their homes, which are in there in Antioch, and they're supposed to bring this message to those that maybe didn't travel down for the day of Pentecost, assuming that these are the same ones, and the context would tell us, just consider witnessing the truth to a close family member that doesn't believe or is wayward for all the reasons you know, having grown up with them, versus a stranger you've never met. You understand the difficulty. I mean, it does present different difficulties. But if we are honest, it is also easy to be comfortable around people who are just like you. So Luke actually has written on this before in his gospel. He recorded the words of Jesus as follows in chapter 6. The assumption is, is that if you're a Christian who loves God, that you'll love your, your family, and that, that's great and all. And this is how Jesus said it. So Jesus said in, in, in Luke 6, or I'm sorry, in, in, uh, in chapter 6, yeah, 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 in Luke 6, chapter 6, starting in verse 32, he said this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners... Love those who love them. Listen to Jesus' logic here. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But Jesus said, but love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, I wonder how much this is present in this first group that verse 19 points out. And even more pointed, I wonder how much this is present in this very room today. Speaking the word. In verse 19, to no one except fill in the blank. Now, I assume in this room and in church history and, 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 and all the way back to this moment where the church learns from this history of how they can live as a narrative study should be, right? Let's follow the characters. Let's see what's happening. I wonder if me and you, how often are me and you speaking the word to your household? Are you doing that? I think all of you would say, amen, we are. And I'd say to that, good. Praise God. Speak to your household the gospel, the good news. Maybe we'd say, are you speaking the word to your coworkers that you're comfortable with? Good. Keep doing it. Keep sharing the faith with those that you're comfortable with. You speaking the word to your family, friends, those that are like you, have an affinity like you have, are, are similar to you, have the same loves and thoughts you have? Great. Preach the gospel. To that all, we say amen. But gather the momentum of the text for a minute. Use your Bible study skills. This is why we teach contrast in our, in our Bible study time on Tuesdays. The Jews who don't believe and need to are, are being evangelized. Great. But, Luke says, but, in 19, the end of it, who is going to hold out the hope for the Greeks? That's what that but would mean. The contrast is, what about the ones that have no affinity, love, care for the things of God. 
What about them? And up to this point, the church has been pretty silent about that, as Luke's recorded it. Verse 20, but there were some of them. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, when they got home, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Notice the difference. 19, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. You kind of speak to those that you're close with, right? It's easy to just speak, shoot the bull, work the truth in there. Not to condemn that. It's great. We got to do that. But when it's time to go to the Hellenists, notice that the word is preach, preaching to them. Inductive Bible study eyes on this passage. When we see but, we understand contrasting elements show up. Here's a contrast, a clear one. I pray a convicting one. Luke uses it in that way on purpose. Some Jewish converts, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, had the boldness to speak to Greeks. And not just casual small talk. No, they preached the Lord Jesus to them. These Hellenists in verse 20 would not uh, have the common ground with these Jews like their unbelieving Jewish neighbors would have had. Uh, think of it like this. Think of the difference between meeting a cultural Christian in Nacogdoches versus maybe meeting you know, a new age kind of Hindu influenced modern day kind of new age cult person. Can you imagine the difference in conversation? Can you imagine how explicit the preaching of the gospel would become as you ran into a direct pagan notion that throws a million affronts to God and his holy character and who he is? What would possess these Jews to mingle with people that their entire life they have sought to honestly avoid and not understand in the slightest? You know what would? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> we must ask ourselves, do we have the Holy Spirit like these men? Many things confirm that we do biblically. But here's one test in the text. Are you willing to go across cultural lines? Are you willing to go across ethnic lines? Are you willing to go across class lines of economic status? Are you willing to go across ideological lines, historical lines, cultural lines, and preach Jesus as Lord? That's what the text asks. History says Christians do. We must. We must let our persecutions be used in the hands of God for preaching. The text is clear on encouragement for how this went. Notice, their persecution turned into preaching, an unbiased gospel, and people were saved. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the church said amen, right? I mean, that is salvation, which is incredible. What a tremendous revelation this is. Yes, the takeaway is people believed, these Hellenists repented of sin and accepted Christ as the Lord of their lives. That is amazing. For me, I think something really wonderful is also here uh, for the laborer as well. You know, it's called uh, an anthropoformism. An anthropo an man, anthropo this is why I don't use big words, right? Anthropomorphism. When you see, and I'm going to explain what that is, Verse 21, the hand of the Lord, you see that? The hand of the Lord was with them. An anthropomorphism is when we attribute some human characteristic um, or some human part to God. We do that. You see, God doesn't have hands. God is spirit, John 4 tells us, to be worshiped in spirit and truth. God is spirit, but he relates to us in this way, these anthropomorphisms. 
right? As a man, he relates to us on these terms. Notice the text says, the hand of the Lord was with them, these people. Now, for a Jew, that, it, that is a loaded idea. It'd be a very familiar thing. I want to show you this, church, because it's, I think it's good. God, God's hand is mentioned many times in their history. God's hand in their history were hands of deliverance. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he brought them out of Egypt and out of bondage. Right? When God gathers them like a hand, it was his hand that went out over the waters and gathered the storm clouds, gathering. God gathers as one who has hands. There is this reminder for a Jew, wow, God's hands. Here, I think it becomes a bit of a, like a double entendre. It's got two meanings that we can see. We could just see that the hand of God was for these Gentiles. We could just see that. The hand of the Lord was with them. It is talking about the Gentiles. But let's not connect the fact, let's not disconnect that a great number who believed what they believe on. They believed on the gospel message that was preached to them. Who preached it? The ones who were sent. The beautiful feet of those who were preached the gospel. Those people are the hand. And so it's this double meaning. Hand of salvation for them. God somehow using me like a hand. Right? He's the hand, I'm the glove, but his intimate involvement. I love the way they get saved. God plucks literally from the fiery hells of the lies of Greek culture. God plucks from the fire of eternal damnation some Greeks in Antioch. And he did it through the church. In closing of this first point, I, wanna, I just want to admonish RBC. I'm looking at me when I say this. I'm looking at us. Do this, church. Do this. We have to do this. Ask yourself, when are you preaching the gospel without partiality? If you're never put in a situation where you have to consider the partiality as an option, oh my gosh, these people are different from me. They smell different than me. They think different than me. They say things different than me. They raise their kids different than me. They worship different than me. They eat different than me. They do all these things different from, than me because they're disconnected from God's promise. When are you in a context where you get to regularly look at that person and preach the Lord Jesus Christ like these people did? These brothers and sisters showed back up home in Antioch as a result of persecution. They could have wept and been down and out about what happened. They didn't. Some went to the Jews and the synagogues. Others, some went to the Hellenists. Ask yourself, leaving this first point, what would that look like in my life? What would it look like to preach the gospel beyond my comfort level? Persecution brought that kind of preaching to the, to the situation. Secondly, I think our text also implies another negative, some gossip. Gossip that really becomes the main thing it becomes in verses 22 through 26, gladness. Gospel, uh, excuse me, gossip that became gladness. Now, so, okay, so after that, looking at verse you know, 22 through 26, so, so after this, Luke, Luke now shows us um, that the word traveled back. So it's like these guys go 300 miles with the gospel, people get saved, and then whoop, Quicker, maybe, you know, quicker than, than they can even get there. Uh, the word travels back to Jerusalem that, uh, that some, you know, some ears in Jerusalem hear that God has saved people. Um, you know, God will take whatever, I think, is considered hearsay by the Jews and turn it into gladness. And that's what I want us to see in this text. I must admit that gossip maybe is strong here. I just needed a G. <laughs> uh, but it could imply that there is only a negative reaction, 
And that's not the case. It's not fair to say that the church in Jerusalem, when they get the report in verse 22, they, they had ears to hear it, and then they sent Barnabas. It should not be that they only think negatively. That's not the case. However, from previous chapters and in anticipation of what's to come, you know, chapter 15, where we really see the Jerusalem church struggling to believe that Gentiles could actually be saved, okay? Those prejudices are there in the past and in the future of, of uh, surrounding our text. Uh, the church we know is going to be plagued by Judaizers who would say things like, yeah, Jews can preach to the Gentiles, but when a Gentile said they got to do more than just believe. That's going to come. But the action taken here in verse 22 is similar to the same action we've seen in the book of Acts where Peter and John, they went up to check out the work that Philip, the evangelist, had done in Samaria. You guys remember this, right? It said that the, the, the apostles sent up, and what did they do? They were going to check it out. Somewhere between the apostolic responsibility they have and micromanaging here, the leaders of the church decide to send someone. And in choosing, they decide on Barnabas. Now, in case you forgot, in Acts 4, we've met this guy. And it it tells us there that Barnabas was actually named Joseph. He's a Levite, which it means he's, you know, a priestly family of Jews, very respected segment of the Jews. And he's from Cyprus, which you'll note is near our text. It's near Antioch. So he was a, a Jew living amongst Gentiles in a Gentile area near Antioch. They named him Barnabas, if you'll remember, because it means son of encouragement. We learn that, he, that when he gives some money to the church out of a, out of a pure heart to serve others, they, they call him that. He's a perfect man for the job. Let's see why. Look with me. Again, if you're looking at the text in verses 23 through 26, you know, for this point, I want us to pick out two ideas from these verses, okay? If the, if the idea of getting someone down there is in the gossiping worry of, of Jewish Christianity, we're going to see God's going to take that worry of gossip, maybe, and turn it into gladness in the person of Barnabas. In order to see that, you need to understand his faith and his practice. So if you're taking notes, you need to write down the faith of Barnabas. That's what we're going to talk about. Did you see some things in the text that gave us an idea about the type of faith that Barnabas has and why he's qualified to evaluate the situation? So, so, so important in this text when it is preached anytime, anywhere, is the reality of the gospel and how it changed our lives. So listen, so prior, prior, we have seen, you know, preaching the Lord Jesus. We've seen that in the text. Believing and turning to the Lord is, is here in the text. Well, that is the gospel message, okay? That's the gospel message. When you, when, you, when you preach the Lord Jesus, people should believe and turn. So they should repent and place their faith in the Lord. That's here. So preaching the Lord Jesus, that's the gospel. I know we're not in mixed company strictly with guests, but having our kids here, Maybe it's important to just remind us all of something I hope you never get tired of hearing. God, the creator, God creates the world, makes man in his image, man falls to sin. Man loves sin more than God. God in his love for man sends the God man, Jesus Christ, to live the life we can't live, die the death in atonement that we deserve for the sins of his people. God's wrath poured out on Jesus in their stead. 
They realize it by faith. God regenerates a new heart and he gives faith and repentance to follow after Jesus, the Jesus who got out of the grave, who rose from the grave, who ascended into heaven, who sits now enthroned and one day will return. And this is the gospel. Preach the Lord Jesus implies that. Believing and turning to the Lord, that implies the response. Repentance, that's what's happened. Now our text in verse 24 really gives the clarity about what that looks like in a person. See, Barnabas is a man full, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's amazing. Saving faith is able to see God's work among the lost clearly for what it is. Why? See, real recognizes real, right? We love that terminology. It's true in this text. Barnabas, they know, is real. Send him there, why? So he can bear witness that the Holy Spirit is the greatest missionary, filling Barnabas, giving his faith a fullness that lets him see what when he gets there. He goes maybe thinking, is this possible? God actually is going to save some of these pagans like this? Think about the gossip and hearsay that maybe has been floating around in his head. The worry. Do they really know? And what does he see? What do we see the text says? When he came and saw, what is, he, what is it? The grace of God, he was glad. And then he exhorted them all. I want you to see something in the text here, brothers and sisters. You will let your gossip get in the way of the gladness you should have for other people believing on Christ and trusting in him if you're not careful. You can fall victim to letting your gossips, your assumptions, what we think is the right and true faith, there is a risk that we could value that so much that we miss an opportunity to be glad as Barnabas is glad here. I guarantee you these Hellenists do not have a perfect faith in this moment. They are like stumbling, fumbling baby giraffes. That's how a giraffe is born. They're just awkward and they're stumbling around, you know, and they're falling all over the place. That's probably what these Christians look like as he gets there, as they fumble over and yet have confidence in a new birth in Christ. And the first thing he does is not exhort. He gets there and he says what? He was glad. First gladness and praise for the evident graces of God. Then he exhorted. Now, when he exhorted, this does mean that he made right what was wrong. That's implied here. There is godly correction. We need this today in our churches. But I wonder if we need gladness more. There seems to be more in-house division right now in like-minded gospel-preaching churches than there has been in a long time. Now, we're not unique in 2022. However, all I have to do, all any preacher has to do is say, we got issues of race and sexuality and political identity and many others that threaten the unity of the church, right? And we see a lot of people rushing to the front line with a Twitter platform or whatever other way to ask us to do what? To come into those conversations and have discernment, bring exhortation now to the issue that presents itself. Now, to that, I say, look, there is a place for that. But I wonder what would have happened if, if, if that spirit only would have dominated Barnabas here. What destruction of discouragement could he bring if he brought the iron hand of his discernment ministry into Antioch? He really could have hurt some people, couldn't he? The word of God does the opposite. 
His example is a true faith that doesn't just see the issues that would cause division first, but rather sees the grace of God, which can bring unity first. If it's anything to celebrate, let it be a celebration that these Gentiles repented and found the hope, the same hope that they had had in Christ. This, I admit, is a hard point for me. Barnabas was the right guy for the job, and, he, and will be. A Barnabas type is the future of the church. It always will be. If the gospel is going to be powerful enough to overcome what we all think, you know, it stands against it. It's going to be a Barnabas. I mean, we need Paul. we got the whole rest of the New Testament. That's true. But, but Barnabas is a key ingredient in this moment. If God's going to set up Antioch as the sending church of the New Testament. The greatest missionaries are coming out of this church in the future. The farthest reaching you know, example in Scripture we have of a church reaching the nations is this church. This is the quintessential kingdom advancing church in the, in the histories of the New Testament. And consider the fact that Peter didn't go to it first. Now, I love Peter. But if we take our context of understanding our sweet brother Peter, this is why I say it's a hard point for me. The moment Peter found somebody saying something dumb or a little unorthodox, he jumped all over it, didn't he? His passion would precede his commitment to truth sometimes. And it'd make things hard and blurry. We've seen it some in the past. We're going to see it. If you, we've studied the book of Galatians. We know that sometimes Peter got ahead of himself so much that he hurt people. He even led this man to be astray at one point, Barnabas. You can see that in Galatians as Paul rebukes him. Now look, God, God, God's plan was the right guy for the right job. Why? Because he's willing to slow down with the truth when others would rush with it. He's patient. Barnabas is praising God with them for the grace and, that's, and, that, and he doesn't get over that. He, he works from that. He doesn't just give tip service to it. He works from it. They need that first from the faithful. You see, they needed recognition. I say this is a hard point for me because often my passion for the truth runs ahead of my own appreciation for it. You ever been there? Where, you're, where, where your passion to see something set right by the truth actually runs ahead of your honest praise and evaluation of how good that thing is? In other words, you share the gospel and you don't believe it. You ever been there? I'm there often. A failure to praise, a failure to give thanks, a failure to stand personally in awe of the grace of God in your own life that when you see it kind of rickety and rockety possibly in somebody else, you still see it. It's humility. I think this gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch, I think it came to us in this package and Luke wants to show it off. I mean, Luke rolls with Paul, right? I mean, you think about this. Luke rolls like long-term with Paul. Literally, 2 Timothy 2, into Paul's life, Luke alone is with me, okay? And the guy that wrote this rolls with Paul all the way to the end. So he's for it. Like he's for it and yet is gonna be willing to record a division between Paul and Barnabas because Paul's proclivity to be the thing that Antioch didn't need. Overlooking John Mark. That's something to come. I know it's a lot, but I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to point out the right person here was the faith of Barnabas. That's what could evaluate the faith of the Gentiles, was the faith Barnabas had. A man full of the Holy Spirit, a man discerning. 
And if anybody would have showed up and failed to praise and give thanks to God for what he had done among them, they really would have done damage. How did he do it? What was his practice? Well, notice, having confidently eliminated you know, the worries of the gossip, seeing that this is indeed a true manifestation of God's glory in bringing this church in Antioch to fruition, right? Barnabas does begin to call some things out. So he doesn't go without teaching or exhortation. He begins to do it. So first, the text seems to imply he did it by himself as best as he could. Do you see verse 24? Note the ending of it. So after he had showed up, what happened? A great many people were added to the Lord. So before the correcting hammer of Paul comes, because it's coming and we need it, right? But even before that hammer of, of, of strong word that Paul will bring, right? Saul will bring. Before that comes, even in verse 24, a great many people are being added. That's good news. That seems to imply that Barnabas' work among them grew and a witness increased. Now, his practice changes, however, in verse 25. Look what he does. He, what does he do? He, he takes now, now his, you know, if, if gossip has, has really become, you know, this, this, this glorying in God's grace, right? Um, now he realizes that that's not all it is, Right? That, that, can't, that can't be all it is. If, man, this is why you need to know your outline. Oh, gladness. Remember I told you I used G words? Gladness. If gladness and God's grace and all of that is all that's here, then it's really not, a pro, it's not enough for the text. He didn't just stop there. But once gossip was out of the way and a true gladness was there, what happens? Verse 25, he goes in to Tarsus to look for Saul. The gladness of Barnabas transforms any rumor or gossip into discipleship. That's what you need to see in the text here. Okay? Because of the spiritual gifts and dependency on the Holy Spirit, Barnabas knows what the sheep of this fold need. Okay? His comforting love and affirmation reveals to them the need they have for what? Sound doctrine. Okay? They need food. They need the strength of the scriptures. And who pops into Barnabas' mind? Saul. Luke doesn't give the details, but having been somewhat rejected, we know, you know, and he's going to be doubted again and again in his life, Saul has disappeared to his hometown, Tarsus. This text implies that Barnabas is like, y'all hold on. And he literally goes, who knows how long a journey that it took him to find the guy because he probably wasn't welcomed in his house anymore having believed now the gospel. He finds Saul, he brings him, and the text says they spend a year in this church in Antioch instructing these disciples in the scriptures. Now, how do we know what he did and what impact his, his faith and practice had? Look at verse 26. A whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Brothers and sisters, the noticeable difference in these men and women who have believed, it starts to show up because of this, discipleship. All right, they take God's word seriously and intentionally. This is what real Christians do. They teach others. They learn by being taught, and then they intentionally do it with others. You are missing out if you haven't done this as well in Christianity. If you wait until you think you are ready, you'll never do it. So Saul, soon to be Paul, he did it. He jumped in, trusted God, did it. He never stopped until he died. This is the first sentences of it. In closing, how, how did this difference show up? I want you to remember. Though the rumors were possibly there in Jerusalem, 
By the time the smoke clears, Barnabas is there and he sees with gladness what's happened. And then God, using Saul, brings discipleship to the church. How does it end? And in Antioch, the disciples, it says, were what? First called Christians. Do y'all see that in your Bible? What is a Christian? The word literally meant the Christ people. Christ people. People that won't stop talking about Christ. People that won't stop talking about the Lord. The promised anointed one. Imagine these disciples growing in this faith alongside their lost family, their lost friends, their fellow Gentiles in the Antioch marketplace. This city, you'll, you'll learn in Bible study, we brothers will encourage you ladies. This city was the third largest city in the Roman province after Alexandria and Rome itself. This was the biggest city a port city full of all kinds of debauchery and crazy peoples. And you know what? You know what God's done? That's the first place. That's the first place people are going to, lost people are going to look in and be like, what in the world are these Christ ones doing, these Christ people? They're first called Christians. Maybe it was insulting. We don't know, but we know this. It had an impact. God took gossip and he turned it into gladness. Last point, shortest one, but, but, but beautiful. Look with me at the, the third point. God's now used persecution, possibly these gossips, to transform the place, right? He's made preachers out of, out of, the, out of the ones persecuted, okay? He's taking gossip and turning it into gladness, seen in Barnabas, and bringing Paul to disciple them. We've got Christians now. And what are they ready for? They're ready for the weather. And then literally, it is weather. So third point, famine, right? Famine that became a friendship. Do you see verse 27? It, it deals with prophets. In these days, prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Um, now, this is north. Remember, Jerusalem's on a hill. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, it says. That's Luke being a historian. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, Send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, is this a historical transition? Yes. We have this recorded by Luke for the purpose of understanding glorious events in real time. Praise God for that, right? But you've got to get further than that if you're going to read the book of Luke correctly this morning, if you're going to study it with me. All of us this morning have got to realize faith cannot be disconnected from our lives. We are body and soul. What good is it if we start saying there's Christians in Antioch if some things don't start coming out of Antioch that are indicative, good works prepared beforehand of the gracious God who's in heaven? If they don't start coming out of there, we should look with caution as to say, is that, is that of God? And we don't have to worry with this group. This famine is a historical fact. That happened in the days of Claudius. We have evidence in Roman history that, that in, and in the centuries after it that a famine did in fact strike this reason. So in closing, I want us to deal with this in one way and we'll leave the rest for future studies. Okay? The believers in Antioch really face in this prophecy of, of, of famine a, a first chance to obey Christ as a body of believers. This is almost like a test church-wide. If the discipleship for a year has been the test as individuals, this is now, is this really an outpost of heaven? What is characteristic about these people that we should confidently say, that's a gathering? 
okay? That's the test that is here in the text. In order to see that, we need to leave the study of prophecy in the New Testament. We got to leave that on the table, church. I promise Acts will give us plenty of opportunities to talk about prophecy in the future, okay? We also need to leave the study of the historicity in this moment. We need to leave Claudius and the idea of that on the table. Leave that for Bible study. But in closing, let's do this. Let's pick up the very black and white reality of this text. One thing is clear. These disciples were true disciples. You know why? Because they were led by the Holy Spirit to serve other Christians who they didn't even know. If you receive the grace of God, you'll be eager to extend the grace of God. If you really believe that Jesus paid it all on your behalf, like we're going to sing here in just a moment, you will, like these Antiochian Christians, become a wonderful example of that wonderful debt that's been paid in your life. And you will seek to do that together. The Bible does say that the disciples determined. You see that word? Because if you don't see it, you need to underline it. Because I wonder, what are you so determined in, according to God's word, by the standard of what it means to be a disciple, that every one of them individually, according to his ability, was willing to send brothers, uh, send relief to the brothers in Jerusalem? There are deep implications of a vertical relationship with God translating into a horizontal understanding that the church was not just for them in Antioch. The church was, was also in Jerusalem. And the famine prophecy sparked in them what? Obedience. A strong desire to love God and to love others and so fulfill the law that they know now has been fulfilled in Christ on their behalf. Obedience. They determined the text says, and they did. The disciples determined, and they did so. They determined it, and they did so. They determined to do it, and then they did so. Have you ever been the recipient of such obedience? Church in Jerusalem received money. Maybe you received money. Let me just give you a strong subjective. I'll just absolutely admit this is subjective. I am not this guy when it comes to money. But I am this guy when it comes to money, if I got to testify to what happened. Me and my wife and our family were in a church split. We had great financial fear on the horizon. God had convicted us to leave the church. It was really hard. A child was going to be born soon. Insurance was threatened. Cost of living had to change. My job went from, from what I was making to two-thirds of what I was making cut. And we were asking some really hard questions by faith. Preface, this is a strong subjective moment. I'm just telling you, as I read this text and I thought, have I been the recipient of somebody's obedience? I had. For I cannot, I remember the pain of writing a, a check, wanting to give a little bit back to God with my wife. And I, I kid you not, and this is not how it always happens. I mean, just for the sake of a recording, right? Somebody going to hear me say this on a recording. They're going to get all excited about, you know, like we give and God gives back. And that's not what this is about. But I will say this. We were dependent on Christ and his church. We gave him faith to great sacrifice. That same morning, a dear saint, a sister that knew of our plight somewhat, but didn't know it, wrote us a check and gave us money. And I remember just wrestling with that so hard in the car. And I realized my wrestling with it, I think even the way I'm telling the story with it, maybe I haven't even fully realized it. But I think my wrestling with it was, 
I kind of discredited a disciple that was determined and then did it. I kind of discredited that for me. But I had to realize in humility, God cares about me. And he will use his means, the church, to do it. Have you ever been on the receiving end of such prompting? Now, now that wasn't subjective. That, that lady is a financial steward who knows God's word, who cares for God's word. I mean, she's wise. It was the word of God instructing her to come and do that for us. All right? She probably already planned it before I could even see there was a need for just being honest. That's how God works. But the point is, as the recipient, do you see what I'm trying to say? How, how, pro, how profound it seems, how unbelievable it is that God would, would literally lead a, a prophet of his to prophesy about a famine to come to burden new Christians with a strong desire to obey him who determined to do what God said and then do it. Can you imagine what it does? You imagine the rejoicing in Jerusalem when they realize we can keep worshiping here and don't have to go seek grain somewhere else because like this gift came, I can feed my kids so that we can hear the word taught continually. That's the kind of stuff that happened here. All because of what? Some disciples who determined it and they did it. This passage, I think in closing, should be a real challenge to us here at RBC. Our church covenant outlines this type of response commitment in numerous ways that, that go beyond money. I know my story is about money. I know this is about money and resources. The, we are commanded to love God with our money and our resources. That's why we give. That's why we give thanks for it. That's why we use it in our church budget. That's why we encourage each other with it among ourselves. And of course, we give to the charity in the lost world. But do you see that this is just an example of what is being preserved principally that our obedience has ramifications. It has wonderful ramifications if we obey. Famine is coming in some way as it is here for the church from this point on. It's always coming. Will you put on the faith of these Antiochian believers? Let's be known as the Christ people the ones loving one another and loving the lost for the glory of Jesus' name. Jesus did pay it all. All to him we do owe because our sin had left a crimson stain, but he, he washed it white as snow. The hope this morning is clear. Can we sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? The answer is no. For us, I would much rather just preach and be glad and have friendship. But if God has to use persecution, gossips, and famines, so be it. I think for us, he's given a greater measure, the word. So let's measure ourselves against it today. Let's be a people at RBC who preach. Let's be a people who are glad when God does a good work. Let's be those who offer authentic friendship as we meet need. Can we do that together? I think we can. Let's pray, and then we'll respond in song and, and taking the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the Barnabases in our lives, God. Lord, thank you, God, for people like him looked on our baby giraffe, clumsy-looking faith and, 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 and were glad with us that God saved. Father, we are an, anticipating such such transformation as we preach the gospel. Father, help us to see across lines where we're not preaching the gospel now and go preach there. Help us, God, to not be a gossiping people. 
Help us to be a glad-hearted people, rejoicing in the majors, concerned with the minors to bring exhortation into discipleship, God. And Father, let us be friends, friends across the lines of famine and heartache and difficulty, God. There is so much of it that lies ahead. Lord, we, can't, we couldn't even plan it to know the sufferings that may, that may be in this room any moment. But we know this, we're ready. So help us to be determined disciples that then act and do as we love one another. May we be known as Christ-like. May they call us Christians, God. Lord, we believe the gospel, and so we sing it together today. In Jesus' name, amen.